Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Safe Speaks, a podcast brought to you by Safe for Sexual Assault Peer Educators. Safe is a student group committed to educating the Georgetown community about interpersonal violence and supporting survivors of sexual assault. Safe hopes that this collection of conversations will encourage, support, educate, and inspire necessary dialogue in the Georgetown community. As a, as a content note, Issues of sexual assault and other forms of interpersonal violence will be explored and discussed. Please prioritize your well-being while listening to these podcasts. We want to remind listeners that the views expressed in the podcast are a representation of the speakers themselves, and not all reflect those of SAFE, Health Education Services, or Georgetown. With all that, let's dive into today's episode, where we hope to learn more about the intersection of race and sexual violence. But before we begin, we would like to introduce ourselves. Hi, everyone. My name is Noah Offman. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'm a first year student at Georgetown studying justice and peace studies. And this is my first year as a sexual assault peer educator. Hi, everyone. My name is Allison Parkey, and I'm also first year at Georgetown. Undecided, but probably studying government and justice and peace studies. Um, I'm from Hillsborough, New Jersey, and this is my first year in sexual assault care educators as well. Um, just to frame this conversation, we would like to give you some context. So for Sexual Assault Awareness Month this year, which is the month of April, SAFE has chose to explore the crucial intersections of race and sexual violence, epitomized in the relatively new term, intersectionality. Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality over 30 years ago in a paper as a way to help explain the oppression of Black women. She introduced intersectionality as a framework for understanding the ways multiple aspects of our identities intersect, influence one another, and compound to create unique experiences. We wanted to engage in this conversation on race and sexual violence because we are not, just as survivors are not, single-issue people. We are all impacted by the ways our identities, cultures, and experiences interact with other forces in the world. To provide quality care to survivors, we must use a lens that enables us to see survivors as their whole selves, including how their experiences and options are impacted by systems of oppression. Learning about the relationship between race and sexual violence enables us to understand systemic and societal barriers that both uphold sexual violence and make it difficult for survivors to seek support. Today, we are incredibly lucky to have the opportunity to engage in this critical conversation with Sarajah Rahim. She holds a master's degree in public health. She founded and operates a consultancy called GroundSheet that fosters social justice and racial equity through strategic planning. GroundSheet is a premier partner of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Workplace Violence Prevention and Response Program. She is also MIQ Digital's Global Senior Manager of Inclusion and Diversity. She's been committed to a survivor-centered environment through her engagement as a victim response specialist and prevention educator and a victim crisis center advocate and hotline responder. Her work has been guided by a commitment to racial justice, and she's greatly contributed to the disciplines of bystander intervention and interpersonal violence prevention. Saraja, thank you so much for being here today and for your work at the intersection of race and sexual violence. To begin, can you please introduce yourself and the work that you've done through GroundSheet with MIQ and as an educator? Oops. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of work. Uh, thanks for having me 
Thanks, uh, Noah, and thanks, Allison. I really appreciate being here with you all today. So uh, thanks for inviting me to join you in this conversation. Hey, everybody out there. Again, my name is Saraja Rahim. My pronouns are she and her. And, um, you know, I, I feel like I've done a big combo pack of work. Uh, a lot of my work, honestly, um, is rooted or um, grew from, especially like my activism, I think grew from college. Um, I went to Berea College in Berea, Kentucky, and my time there had great points and it also had low points, but I think one of the things that really stuck with me was that while I was in college, I had a lot of my friends, but it seemed like an impossible amount of my friends share that they um, had experienced sexual violence or um, were impacted by domestic violence. And I think one of the things that I found most shocking about that was learning like, oh, wait, this is already a problem that the, the professionals, um, the adults around us knew about. And I was like, if everyone knows this is a problem, surely there's something that we could be doing to prevent it. Um, how how strange that that's not a thing. Uh, and so as I was getting ready to graduate from Bria um, and preparing kind of for my next stage of life, I really thought I invented the field of public health, y'all, because I was like, how do we prevent things before they happen? No empathy. Um, I didn't invent the field of public health. I was super excited <laughs> to find that it was already out there and that people were already doing that kind of work. Um, and so... Um, that was kind of my, my starting point was really thinking like, how do I make it or how do I support or how do I, how do I make like the college experience that I had, uh, possible for, for more people? Um, and then as I, as I kept growing and learning, I was thinking like about the racial violence that I experienced in school, but I wasn't even trying to think about pre preventing and, and thinking more about how do I make that that possible as well. Um, moving from college, uh, I graduated into the recession. Um, I was a teaching fellow in Washington, D.C. for a little bit, not so far from, from you all at a school called Capital City Public Charter School. Shout out to them. They're an amazing school, um, great group of humans. They work with a great and diverse group of students. Um, and then from that, I left that job and I didn't realize it was a recession, y'all. So I, um, was like, I'll get another job. And I didn't. <laughs> so from, from that, I did a bunch of like odd jobs. And, um, one place where I really kind of found like my core values and developed like a much broader, quieter concept of how the world works and, and what it really means for violence be systemic um, was through the Occupy movement um, as a part of Occupy Atlanta and it was really transformative. Um, I learned a lot about both environments and housing justice and sexual violence and racial justice and racial violence and like how all those things are really um, inextricably linked but also deliberately linked. Um, so since then, I've been, I've worked on college campuses as a as a kind of in a victim advocate role and prevention education role. Um, I've worked with um, with uh, a national nonprofit doing uh, bystander intervention work. 
um, called Altruistic, to a program called Green Dot. I've worked with um, as a technical assistance provider uh, through the organization for the Department of Justice's Office on Violence Against Women. Um, from there, I ended up uh, founding my own kind of consultancy, which is Groundsheet. Um, because I really wanted to think more about like who has the movement work that I have been doing, um, the work that I've been doing, who's being left behind. And one of the kind of um, things that I found was pretty consistent in like my separate racial justice work and then my sexual sexual violence prevention um, work was that women of color um, were being left behind again and again, kind of like falling to the to the margins. And I thought it was so interesting that I developed almost like um, my whole career. I've been working for a decade and um, the work that I was doing, I wasn't even certain would would save my, my own life. And so I was um, really thinking about how can I re- rededicate myself to doing work that addresses people um, at the margins and specifically work that uplifts, censors, uh, women of color and censors racial justice and censors the dismantling of ancient black. So, uh, and I'm also now at MIQ Digital, which is doing really cool, um, really cool work as a business as we start to have like tough conversations about um, about anti-racism and how that fits into, into work workplaces. So I'm excited to be a part of that work as well. Wow. Um, yeah. I th- that was long. That. that was a really long introduction. Sorry, folks. Somebody right now is like, um, thank you. We could have read that on your LinkedIn. <laughs> we did read that on your LinkedIn. We read that on your LinkedIn profile. Yeah. I hope it was uh, maybe slightly more interesting than my LinkedIn profile. Oh, for sure. I mean, you just got to learn more. So um, based on this incredible incredibly impressive work um, and your very nuanced perspective. Why does exploring the intersection of race and sexual violence matter and why is it crucial in both prevention and response? Yeah. Um, I think one of the, the hugest parts about exploring those intersections is really making sure one that and I think most importantly that people aren't left behind. Uh, it can be really easy when you are working on a problem to get hyper-focused on the center, like getting the resource that you have to the majority of the people the majority of the time. But what happens is that when you're continuously building a, a resource for the center is that you're consistently building away from what people on the margins mean. Um, and then you are consistently building things that marginalize people. Um, if you if you aren't creating resources that are deliberately inclusive of their experiences, you're always going to be making something that that leaves people behind, um, and that impact that effect compounds and compounds um, in ways that's really harmful, and in ways that you you see the disproportionate um, rates of violence that that people of color experience, rates of interpersonal violence that people of color experience, um, that I think is in large part due to the, like the constant centering of, of whiteness and white folks generally. Um, 
so when you're thinking about it in terms of prevention, um, there are going to be some standards of prevention that are going to be like tried and true that are generally going to be best practices generally working, but you can't identify best practices if you aren't actually looking and seeing if they're working in different communities, if you're not actually pulling from those communities that are maybe at the intersections of other issues or um, are maybe experiencing the same kind of violence but in nuanced ways. So it's really hard to identify best best practices. Um, and then in regards to response, it's super easy in response to create response mechanisms that feel like they should work for everyone, but maybe only work uh, for the people whose experiences that they're that they're centered around. Um, I think that you see that a lot in kind of the carceral uh, feminist approach to to response, especially um, that I think happens in like violence against women, um, sexual violence prevention, work and movement, you know. So. Does that answer that question? Um, and I guess the, the next like follow-up question would be, how does a survivor's racial identity impact, you know, their experiences? with interpersonal violence and you know before that just more importantly like how do you define interpersonal violence when talking about these issues sure um i think and i i'm not speaking like for all survivors um of color or for um for everyone generally, these are just kind of broad, broad statements about how race impacts people generally. Um, our race definitely impacts what we consider to be violence um, and the degree to which we consider violence as important um, or the degree to which we classify which violence or which form of violence impacts our community or impacts us the most. Um, I think that that's a big part of how survivors' racial identity impacts their experience with interpersonal violence. If you're in a community that has other forms of violence happening really often and really publicly, um, then you might deprioritize your own your own experiences with, with sexual violence or with domestic violence. Um, if you're in a community that is not being impacted with systemic violence as often, uh, or if you're in a community that is maybe perpetrating some uh, systemic violence against against other communities, then you're also going to have different ideas of what what violence entails, what constitutes violence, or rises to the level of of violence. Um, and so I think that when we're thinking about what does interpersonal violence entail, a lot of people's minds, um, and I think especially a lot of white people's minds goes straight to like domestic violence, dating violence, um, sexual assault. Uh, and I think that's completely reasonable. Uh, 
when I'm thinking about interpersonal violence, though, I also like to think about bullying. I like to think about kind of the like one-to-one racial violence that happens. And that can either be between acquaintances or strangers or people who know each other. Violence that's occurring in institutional settings, but maybe isn't institutionalized violence, but is a little bit. So violence is happening in schools, violence is happening in workplaces, in prisons, uh, account all of that, all of that stuff is interpersonal violence. So interpersonal violence for me is one-on-one or one in a small group, small group interactions. Are really what I think of when I'm thinking about interpersonal violence. And so I think a survivor's racial identity, one might impact how many forms of violence they're experiencing at once, and then how they are classifying the importance of that violence, or how the community around them is classifying the importance of that violence, or normalizing it, or feeling like there are more important things to address. With that in mind, one of the things that I think is really important that I don't see talked about very often in violence prevention efforts is when there are communities that are like, ah, oh, you know, sexual violence really important, but we have all these other things happening to us right now that we really want to prioritize. Or domestic violence really important, but we have all these other things happening that we want to prioritize. I would ask, and I think that this even expands beyond race, is that we think of how much interpersonal violence, that private violence that we think of as other people's business or happening to other people or in someone else's home, spills into public violence that then impacts all of us. Where all of us are like, wow, that was very intense. Where did this come from? We're shocked. We're horrified. We don't understand how in this community, like, you go back and you look and you're like, well, that person has a history of harming the partner. So what if we had found a way to address it here when they were harming their partner? What if we had found a way to address it here when they were harming their children? What if we had found a way to uh, address it here when they were harming harming their subordinates? Like that, that idea that private violence spills into public violence, I think is really important as we're thinking about um, Racial identity and also interpersonal interpersonal violence. Yeah, I really um, I really like your definition of interpersonal violence, especially because um, under this definition we can kind of take into account, you know, the very a uh, much broader and comprehensive definition of what violence entails, and then come to further understand how you know women of color and other women at the margins of our um, of our communal context are experiencing levels of violence and oppression in different ways than the major- majority. Um, but also at the same time, you know, their experiences are often lumped in with the experiences of white women. Um, and this often results in the loss of visibility and the inability to address the unique needs and circumstances of women of color. Um, so, you know, from this, what what do you think are the unique needs of these survivors of color that are often missed when we lump these experiences in with the experiences of white women? I think the, the experiences that are missed and 
the, the kind of needs that go unaddressed is first starting with this kind of idea of like women in general. Um, women in general, often when people are kind of using that or making that broad generalization, they're talking about white ladies. Uh, they're talking about uh, white women's experiences. And when you think about it, that's because a lot of the, the research, especially around sexual violence in college, is based on the experiences of white women in college. And so when we're thinking about the, the literature that prevention programs are pulling from, when we're thinking about the literature that response programs are using, um, that literature is based on the experiences of white women. And so the interventions or preventions will also be based on the experiences of white women. And without deliberately pulling in literature that is meant to address the specific needs of women of color, there's always going to be a deficit in the services that we're providing. And if we're continuously doing that, then we're saying we're okay with it. Like we're okay with not reaching those populations of, of survivors again and again. Um, and so I think uh, a big part of it is like regarding unique needs is generating research that's specific to people of color, um, women of color, non-binary folks of color, but, so that we can look and actually see like what people are experiencing. People, again, might be experiencing multiple forms of violence or might be experiencing forms of violence that are pushing them or angling them into risk for, for these other types of violence. And so I think that that's a huge um, need that isn't being met is, is creating better statistics, um, especially as they relate to uh, like indigenous women, uh, Alaska Native women, um, and then especially as they relate to Black women, especially as they relate to um, Latinx um, and Hispanic women on college campuses, especially HBCUs. Like, there's lots and lots of dynamics to study that are being missed practically for people's like real lives, because we're talking about real people. Um, the the things that we miss is that we miss creating real community and real opportunity for people. Like we miss getting people stuff that they need. We miss getting people in the door. Uh, we miss getting people the services that feel like a good fit for them. Um, I think that if if someone right now is listening, if by chance there's some prevention professional or response professional who's listening and they're like, well, people of color, women of color just don't use our services. Um, I would challenge you to consider that perhaps there's something you could be doing differently. Um, I think it's easy for us to say like, oh, they just don't want to. Um, but it's, it's harder and more responsible for us to say, what can I do? Let me do everything I can do possible before I try to pawn this off on the community that, that has a, a need for these services. Um, and then uh, a third thing that I want to raise, and I'll, I'll be brief, is that when we're thinking about 
women of color experiencing levels of violence and oppression in different ways than, than white women, one of the ways that society responds is having a, a reliance on recommending the police as an intervention. This is harmful for, for people of color. This is harmful for women of color. But this is also harmful for white people. This is also harmful for white women. Um, it's harmful for people of color in ways that I think are a little bit more more obvious. Um, there are communities of color that feel like they they can't call the police, or individuals that feel like they can't call the police. Um, they feel like maybe they can't intervene out of fear for their for their own life. Um, or their own safety, or their own kind of social standing. There are people who worry that bringing the police into their community doesn't really feel like a, a realistic option for for intervention, and that's completely reasonable. It's a it's definitely a barrier for for people um, for people of color, and then also a barrier for people who are economically. Uh, disadvantaged or economically oppressed or marginalized um, because calling the police potentially means that you also are, are giving yourself a consequence. You're removing someone from your community and that can be disproportionately impactful because then you'll have other ramifications, other economic ramifications, other social ramifications by extricating, removing someone from your community. Um, so I think that there there are lots of ways that that is harmful there as like not a not a resource, uh, but it's often cited. Obviously, calling police um, to to situations can have a multitude of of different outcomes, and some of those outcomes can be really harmful for folks. Um, and rebound on the person who called for help. Um, and I think that that has been really visible for how Black people experience interactions with the police. But domestic violence survivors have really similar interactions with the police. Um, the reliance on the police to respond to forms of harm that they're not trained to respond to means that we can't create actual real addresses for those forms of harm. Um, and for white folks who generally are able to rely on these institutions, it can be a really big shock to have those moments where you are seeking services or seeking help and you interact with a, a police officer who doesn't have the training to provide you with that help. Um, and in fact, does harm in those moments. Um, I was a, I was a victim advocate. I've definitely interacted with, with police officers who have caused harm. I've interacted with police officers who responded really well and really intelligently and compassionately. But, like, you, you don't know who you're going to get and it's really, really individual. And, um, in that moment, it can be traumatizing. It can be devastating. It can be life threatening. And so, because of our over-reliance on, on law enforcement, we've created these huge impediments or huge barriers for, for women of color 
um, for survivors of power of all genders to seek services. Um, we've created these huge barriers for um, for, for people who, uh, who are already in vulnerable or precarious situations. And also, we've created a, I think, a false impression for for white folks where we can't have honest conversations about who is the best equipped to respond um, or investigate or um, consider or develop or um, interventions for interpersonal violence. So uh, kind of a mis a misplaced trust kind of situation. These are long answers. I I really liked your answer and I thought it was very important. Um I I especially liked how you touched on language um and how that addresses, you know, women in general, but really it just addresses a particular privileged group of women like um and like white women especially. Um and you definitely touched on it um, when you were talking about how women of color and especially, you know, other forces of intersectionality, like queer women of color or trans people or non-binary people, how um, people of color in general don't really seek out um, uh, help for a variety of reasons. Um, and I think it's important to talk about like these systems that you mentioned, like the criminal justice system, like the police force, and how they kind of become ingrained um, and internalized within communities that are being marginalized and are being directly affected. Um, so I guess to add on to what you were already saying, like how do we make those improvements, both like individually and in the society? Sure. So how do we make improvements about the way that we respond? Yeah. I think that there are lots of different ways that we individually can make improvements about the way that we respond. Uh, the first way that I would say is being willing to respond. Um, so just interpersonally, being willing to to respond or intervene or check in or support or ally or show solidarity across across difference is super important. Um, when we're talking about these forms of, of violence, when we're talking about sexual violence and then how it intersects with institutional violence, or when we're talking about how the intersections of people's identities make them more vulnerable, what that really calls out for me is that that means that we should be helping each other more, like looking out for each other more, supporting each other more. There's not any way forward where we're not holding each other's hands. Um, I think about bystander intervention a lot, partially because uh, that's a field that I've worked in for a really long time, but partially because it's a, a value of my family. It's a thing that that I grew up watching my uh, mom and dad do in different in different ways. My mom was a bystander in the sense that she would she would and will. I she I'm sure feels me rolling my eyes at her somewhere off in the distance. Um, is that she would and will 
stuff into situations that are happening in that moment. Um, so I grew up with her modeling that, that if you see something happening, that it's, it's time for you to, to step in and check in as, as an ally, as a person who's invested in the community, as a, a family member, as a, as like a fellow human. Um, and my dad's kind of method of bystander intervention and partnership with my mom was really around providing care and looking out for and um, supporting and mentoring and showing up for. And so I think that those those values are things that we need to do more often and and across difference with more consistency. What literature uh, shows is that on college campuses especially, um, people don't show up for for black people with the same consistency that they that they might for other other groups. Um, I think that the the literature around kind of bystander intervention and medical emergencies and sexual assault kind of shows that the farther people are from the majority group from from whiteness, the less likely they are to receive aid when they need it. Um, for a variety of different reasons. People are uncomfortable interacting across difference. Uh, and that manifests in a lot of different ways. White people specifically are uncomfortable interacting across difference. One group that is kind of consistently more willing to, even though, you know, imperfect, nobody is intervening most of the time, uh, is black women. So black women are, are more prone to intervening, uh, more prone to checking in, more prone to showing up for people, um, and pretty consistently across difference. So I think that showing up for, um, for black women the way that, that black women uh, are willing to show up for for us is is important. Um, I think that deliberately showing up or checking in about about people who are are unalike to you is really important. And I think getting this getting training to do that confidently and competently. Uh, Hollow Back is a really excellent bystander intervention organization that talks about uh, bystander intervention. Um, and specifically by senior intervention across difference. Um, and they conduct trainings all the time for, for free. They're short. Uh, that's something that you can practice together. But honestly, just doing it the one time empowers you to do it the, the next time. So that's, that's the individual responsibility that I'm going to, to put onto you is take a moment to, uh, next time you see something concerning happening, to, to say something, anything. Um, whether it's something that's sexual violence, domestic violence, racial violence, uh, whether it's like a verbal thing where you're like, I wouldn't normally think this is as violent, or whether it's uh, um, something something more intense, do it in a way that really prioritizes your own physical safety and the physical safety of the person being harmed, but do it in a way that pushes past your discomfort discomfort because it's gonna be uncomfortable. And so that's that's specifically one thing that I would like just individuals who might be listening to do. Uh professionals who are listening, 
it's a responsibility to really create response programs um, and prevention programs that are rooted in some type of literature. Uh, people keep reinventing the wheel, but there's a, enough literature out there at this point to create some stuff that's really, really good. And there's stuff that's really, really good out there. Um, now it's a really good time to improve the stuff that we've already made, if, it, if it's been a minute. Um, just consistently kind of adding to our literature, consistently relying on others for subject matter expertise. And, you know, I think not not falling into the kind of old habits of what worked for me that worked for, for everyone else. Um, I think we have a responsibility to to make this field one that is working um, from the margins to the center. Uh, as folks has has uh, suggested for us as a way of working. Um, so yeah, I think that's the responsibility of professionals is, is looking at the work they're doing right now and and doing that. And if you haven't started doing that work yet, start there. Don't don't stay in the margins because if you stick too much there, you're gonna miss you're gonna miss the majority of the humans. Uh, but definitely starting from there and working your way to the middle. And then you'll meet someone else. Like you'll meet someone else who's also working from a different margin, uh, which means that it should make even cooler stuff. Yeah, um, I kind of want to just get back to what you were talking about at the individual level um, in terms of, you know, stepping up. And that kind of made me think about, like, our my role as an ally and other people's roles as allies. Um, and so I guess from that, you know what? What ways do white folks? What ways can white folks um, dispel dangerous behaviors or beliefs that perpetuate interpersonal violence in communities of color? So beyond this, you know, you see something happening, you step in. Um, things that are more subtle or um, verbal or not just outright violence, but also you know, violent insofar as that they're harmful and the ideas that they perpetuate. Sure. I think that white people can start by um, addressing violence that is in the closest proximity to them um, that that you might be complicit in. And this is with anybody with any type of privilege. Uh, if you have some type of privilege, that means that someone is experiencing some type of deficit in exchange for your privilege. Um, I say that for myself as a black woman, there are privileges that I experience that mean that someone else is experiencing a deficit because I have a little more than I than I should. Um, I think addressing those forms of violence are a good place to start. Um, and at the same time addressing interpersonal violences. I think that if you are um, at, a, at a party and you are noticing um, harmful behaviors happening, checking in where you can, like you don't have to, you don't have to let that stuff go. I think all those moments where we're checking in with people um, in ways that are compassionate, acknowledge that they're imperfect and that we're imperfect, but also acknowledge like you can't, keep going for it this way, um, really create a culture that we can all really 
really enjoy and live in and, and be safe in. And then starting with the things that we have the most influence on, on um, are also really important. So thinking beyond the the violence that seems most overt to us, to kind of get letting it get real close to us and thinking about in this space that I am in, what is violence that's happening? What violence? What violence are people experiencing? And how how can I help rectify that? How can I correct that? How can I shed light on that? How can I uplift the voices of people who are, are doing work around that already? Um, so not straying into into white saviorism, but really thinking about how can we leverage our privilege to uplift other people's uplift other people's voices to to share resources that we might have a disproportionate amount of. Um, and it really works work in ways that dismantles um, white supremacy and combats blackness. Um, and I do think part of that is being willing to intervene in in messed up situations. Um, but you have to get accustomed to that because I think that a part of whiteness, capital W, large culture, is individualism and so starting to think about how do i break down a culture of individualism in a way that makes me feel responsible for for the people around me yeah i think um to kind of like go off on that um there's you know sources of like interpersonal level and then there's also like other institutional levels like for example college campuses mm-hmm. um and especially like talking about the college campus like disciplinary process so um i guess the question my question would be like how do we make this uh, campus disciplinary process um and also like other forms of institutional accountability like the criminal justice process more inclusive more equitable and more accessible for students of color and you know can these processes be reformed or do they need to be like recreated and reestablished that's a great question i think that i i don't think that we have time to speak to like what can be done about the federal government and the uh, local government's responses to uh, interpersonal violence. Um, so I think we can speak a little bit about about colleges and universities. Um, one of the the things that I I feel like I heard a lot when I was working with survivors um, across across gender across race is like I just want them to admit that they were wrong. Like I want them to acknowledge that they were wrong. Um, apologize like to take accountability um so i think that processes that allow for real accountability um real accepting of of the harm that someone's done creating those processes is really important so the options around um kind of restorative justice or like circle circle processes having those in place or creating those processes as an option in a in a like disciplinary proceeding I think is really really important um 
having trained people do it is really, really important because sometimes campuses uh, and communities and other institutions will be like, yes, circle processes, that sounds nice. That means that no one gets in trouble and that means no one takes responsibility. So how I'll do it as a person with no, no background, uh, I will facilitate that mediation process. Um, but that's not like real justice. That's not real accountability. Having trained facilitators, having people who really, really want to think about how do we restore, how do we repair, how do we correct this imbalance, um, is, is really important and really impactful. And I think helps people re-envision the ways that we can, can be in community with each other. Um, I think that also having the, the processes that are in place, being really transparent, uh, making sure that they're being reviewed frequently, making sure that people complainers and respondents and people associated to those those investigations uh, by by Title IX officers and et cetera uh, are able to review those processes and and talk about those experiences and um, that that is being kind of measured and and that investigators are being accountable for best practices and uh, trauma-informed investigations um, is really important. So I think training for everyone who is leading people through those processes, um, and then also a, a variety of ways that you can you can address them as opposed to, to just saying like someone's getting kicked out of here, um, which I think is fair sometimes. You got to get the boot. You can't be in this community right now. Um, maybe if you can come back later, maybe not. Um, but I think having that be, be really available, um, and with the, with the main emphasis being kind of restoration or, um, not doing more harm, I think is important. I think those are all really great points um, and definitely something that we can take away um, as, you know, we're all part of this college campus. Um, just as we're wrapping up, is there anything you want to add, touch on, highlight? Um, I mean, I think you pretty much hit everything on the head, but. Um, one thing I want to add is that I know I'm talking about by student intermission again, but it's because I love this. Um, is that I'm don't not we all? Asking, I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't done myself. Um, I, I think you don't have to keep this anecdote in, but I, I do want to, to share it. I'm a, I'm a frequent intervener, um, partially because of my parents, who I mentioned, uh, also just because I, I think that as a, as a, ADHD, or I think it makes me slightly more prone to noticing. So, yes, uh, so yes, I'm a I noticer in a way that, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for ADHD, and then sometimes like, oh, boo for ADHD. <laughs> but sometimes you know, it's really a, it's a it's a resource, and so I think it's made me really prone to being a noticer of things. Um, I intervene in. Um, something in college and so I'll share it now feel free not to include this in your recording um 
because I do feel like we have a kind of natural built-in stopping place somewhere in there. Um, but I was, a, I think I was a first-year student um, at the time. We were called freshmen, and I, um, I was at a campus party. <clears throat> My boyfriend had dropped me off at a party that was just happening on the outskirts of our, our tiny campus in this tiny town. And I saw a sophomore student who I knew her from from theater, because um, I was a theater nerd. Maybe the lamp, but not, definitely not much. And she was really intoxicated. Um, I checked in with her. I was like, hey, what's up, buddy? She was feeling pretty down in herself. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's fair. It's a bummer. Um, but I kind of wasn't like, super cute into that. I came back around and she was talking to a dude who I didn't know. Um, and I felt worried because he was like really close, really draping, um, like draping his arms over. And I was like, that doesn't seem right. And so I um, checked in with her and was like, hey, buddy, is everything okay? And she was like, yeah, everything's fine, but kind of incoherently. I see her again later. She's sitting on the curb. She's still like bummed out. She has a, a beer, which I'm like, oh, can I have some of your beer? Or I pour it out. Um, and I'm like, I think you probably should not drink anymore. Um, so it looks like you're having a, a rough night. Um, the guy is kind of hovering nearby, and I'm like, hey, man, like, She's not really in any condition to like make out with me, with so don't do that. But again, I'm a, I think I'm probably 17, um, 18 at best for my first year of student. Um, he kind of dismisses me. I am just wandering around this party, um, and I go to find a senior or a junior girl, and I talk to her, and I say, like, I know this thing, and I'm feeling really worried. Can you check in with, with her and talk to her and, and ask her to go home? So we go out to go find her, and she's gone. And the guy's gone. And I am frantic. Um, and so I'm walking around, and I'm calling for her. I'm doing, it's not a walk. It's more like a speed hustle, a jog. Um, and I walk to the edge of the field because I'm like, she couldn't have left. And I start to call her name and I hear her say, I'm over here. And she's in the field. So I walk out into the field with my senior friend who's night blind. And so she can't see at night, but I'm like, better, better you and me than no one. So I'm holding her hand and we walk out to this field and I'm like, Hey buddy, what's going on? And, um, she says, oh hey and I'm like what's up and she says he went to go get condoms and I say oh no why don't we just go home instead and she says okay I say can I give you a lift and she says sure so I I get her onto my back and I carry her piggyback she's very small and I'm very strong um I'm also very small so I'm carrying the sophomore and holding a, a senior's hand and we're, we're walking through this, this field, um, in Kentucky. Uh, I drive her home. Um, I drive her and her friends to her friend's parents' house. 
I didn't know how to get them back to the dorm. Um, and, and I, and I leave them there with the parents and, uh, the parents are really grateful and they're not mad. They're just like, oh, this is way better than anything else that could have happened. Um, and I go in and live the rest, the rest of my life, you know, she lives the rest of her life. And what is a short, a short anecdote for me, uh, a short moment in time, 90 minutes of, if that, of stress or labor is a moment where her life is the same. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It just stays the, I don't know why I feel too good like that. It stays the same. Yeah. Which is yeah. Important. So. And like that, that image of you with the girl on your back and your hand in the senior's hand, I think that's like the epitome of what it means to intervene. And like, it also, does. Cause I need yeah. that in here. Like, I'm to a field for myself <laughs> yeah. uh, as a young black woman in Kentucky just walking out into a rural field to uh, uh, confront a, a random white man no I needed I needed that girl um we ha- we had to do that together and so I think you know challenging ourselves in those moments to to be uncomfortable or to to be weird or to be awkward in a way that makes it so that people's lives don't change is is really important. So I think thinking about that interpersonally in terms of bystander intervention, but also thinking about that institutionally because there's so many small moments, so many, so many opportunities that we have, um, especially more opportunities as our, our privilege or institutional power grows to make it so that people's people's lives don't don't change or that they only change for the better. And so um just challenging yourself to continue to to reach reach for those moments um and reach for that reach for that courage. Thank Sorry. you. I I have no words. Um I'm trying <laughs> That was beautiful, like truly. Um, watching other people get choked out makes me be choked out. So sorry, sorry. We got a little cascade going here. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, I know. And the, the great thing about it is that it's actually a really good story. Nothing, nothing bad happened was, in the story. It was nothing a really bad good story. It's really beautiful. And um, also, it's like it's crazy that you were literally eighteen, which is like younger than I am now. Yeah, like they like our age, and to think about like you trusting your intuition, like trusting your gut, and just intervening um, sets a great example for yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah, you got this. There are lots of ways and lots of times to do that. Yeah, for sure. I have a, a little flow chart, by the way, on my LinkedIn that says, "Should I intervene or am I caring?" Uh, which if you feel like worried about intervening and you don't want to be a parent or, or be getting into someone's business, um, there's a little flowchart on, on my LinkedIn profile uh, for ground sheet that can help you 
puppy than Karen. I navigate the Karen waters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you know sometimes we find ourselves um, in other people's business, but yeah. a lot of the times we could we could definitely stand to be in each other's business more. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you so so much, Saraja, for coming to speak with us. And for all of the amazing work that you do, I feel so lucky to have been able to be a part of that conversation. Um, these topics don't get talked about enough, so we hope that we can help start these important and brave conversations on our campus. For all the listeners, if you want to learn more about the work that Suraja is doing, please make sure to check out Ground Sheet's official Facebook LinkedIn pages at Ground, and also check out groundsheet.org. Um, all of their links will be in the show notes. Also, if you want to learn more about what SAFE is doing, make sure to check us out on Instagram at GU underscore SAFE. We have several events coming up in April, including a social media campaign, a panel further exploring this intersection, and we will be hosting Denim Day. So get excited. Um, all details you can find out on our social media. Once again, thank you so much, Saraja, and thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Safe